city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Imagine you and your family became close friends with the neighbors who lived across the street. Both you and the other mom have children about the same age, and the kids have become good friends in spite of the fact that the friend of your child can't do all the things that your child can because of all of her many illnesses. You feel so sorry for your neighbor who seems so devoted to her child and whose life seems consumed with one medical appointment after another. The least you can do is listen to her and offer sympathy and emotional support. In fact, you're in awe over her positive attitude and the brave face she puts on in spite of everything. Now, over time, you notice that some of the things she tells you don't quite add up. But you chalk it up to the stress she's under. After all, she's not a doctor, even though she seems so knowledgeable at times that it seems like she's one. And then one day you come home to find the police outside of your neighbor's house and discover that the person that you thought was her child's best advocate was the person making her sick. Welcome to A Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist and private investigator. Today's show is on medical child abuse, most commonly known as Munchausen by proxy. And I am thrilled to have one of the country's leading investigators in this kind of child abuse. Detective Mike Weber has 35 years of law enforcement experience, including 12 years as a crimes against children investigator. He has investigated 22 cases of medical child abuse and handles all medical child abuse reports in Tarrant County. He also offers training in medical child abuse. He does medical record reviews and expert witness services. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Mike, how do you define medical child abuse? Medical child abuse is best defined as a caregiver who intentionally exaggerates, fabricates, or induces illness in a person under their care. And that person is usually a child, elderly individual, or disabled person. And so, Mike, I think most of our listeners are probably thinking, why in the world would anybody do something like that, especially a caregiver? In most of these cases, in the cases that I've worked, I'll speak specifically to those cases. Every single case that I've worked, the motive has been attention seeking from different sources in different cases. Uh, And I do think you need to take each case specific to the facts of that case for your motive, right? Just like any other crime. But when I look back at all the cases we prosecuted, every single case has been about attention for the offender. And when you say the caregiver, do you mean the mom primarily, the father? Who, who is most likely to do this kind of crime? There was a recent literary review uh, that examined over 700 cases of this abuse that published in 2017. And uh, they found that 95.6% of these offenders are the mother of the child and 97.6% are female. And so how do these caregivers come to the attention of either hospital personnel or child protective services or even come to your attention? It can be a variety of ways that they come to attention. It could be a concerned neighbor. Um, It could be uh, the most viable reports we've had are from the medical community who are concerned themselves that this is happening. Um, And interestingly enough, it could be from a speech therapist 
And people ask, why a speech therapist? Well, speech therapists provide feeding therapy for children. And a lot of times the mom will claim their child can't eat in order to starve their child to the point of getting a feeding tube placed. And the speech therapist will often see that the child can eat during the therapy. So what are the kind of things that these caregivers do? You said they kind of induce illness or they fabricate, make up illness or do those kind of things. What are some of the examples that you've seen, Mike? Right. And let's be clear that it can be anywhere along that spectrum, right? It can be exaggeration, induction, fabrication, or it can be all three. Some of the things that I've seen, the most common thing that is seen really in research is starvation to get a gastric feeding tube placed. So basically what you do is you starve your child at home, make your child lose weight, take your child to the doctor and say, doctor, doctor, my child can't eat, won't eat, is refluxing, is, has diarrhea, intentionally give a false medical history to the doctor in order to get what you want done. And what you'll see when medical notes are taken well by nurses and doctors, you will see a pattern of mom pushing for the more invasive procedure. Why in the world would a doctor perform an unnecessary procedure or surgery on a child who is healthy? That's a great question. And it's a question that the general public has. It's a question that law enforcement has a very hard time wrapping their head around. And it's a question that sometimes CPS can't get their head around. Doctors operate in a very gray area. Police operate in a very black and white area. So you kind of have a collision there. For example, if a, if a police officer asks a doctor the question, is it possible? That's a terrible question to ask a doctor. Is there going to be like, well, anything's possible, right? So as a police officer, you ask the doctor the question, in your experience, have you ever seen? Dada, dada, dada. The reason the doctors do these procedures, number one, there is no education outside of board-certified child abuse pediatricians on this form of abuse. Doctors are not educated on this form of abuse. They don't know the look for it. They're actually taught in medical school to trust the medical history provided by the parent. Medical history is extremely important in a medical diagnosis. It's the most important factor. And these offenders also choose ailments that are not clearly testable for, right? So there's not a black and white yes or no test for these medical conditions. Give me an example, Mike, of something like that. So what would be something that a perpetrator of medical child abuse might come to a doctor and say is a problem that would be difficult for a a pediatrician or a doctor to pick up on? Let's stick with the most common. Feeding issues would be hard, right? The doctor's going to see that patient for 15 minutes, maybe. They're going to rely on the history of the mother, and they're going to move on to the next patient. Why would they not? They may do testing. They may do reflux testing to see if the child has reflux. When we talk about induction, the mom can can try to induce reflux, or the mom can just will have a negative test, negative reflux test, until the doctor, well, he's just having a good day. And then, you know, come back, oh, the doctor, three days later, he's doing the same thing. And these defenders will stay on these doctors until they either get what they want or the doctor becomes suspicious, at which time they leave care and just simply transfer to another doctor and start all over. Well, you know, you do raise a really good point in that I would imagine most pediatricians in particular, you know, they rely on the parents to tell them what's been going on. And I know when I was taking my kids to the pediatrician, we didn't have a lot of time with that doctor. So I would imagine they see kind of a snapshot of, 
this child. And yet they're thinking, well, this mom or dad is with this child all the time. Correct. And I've had, I've had people say to me, if I could do the doctor, I, could, I couldn't even get simple medication prescribed. Well, that's because you weren't intentionally lying to the doctor about your child's health, right? So the act here is being perpetrated by the criminal offender, who in most cases is the mother. It's just difficult to even get your head around this. I mean, I, I know that when I used to take my kids to the doctor, even them getting their vaccinations was just excruciating for me. So it just kind of makes me wonder, why would a parent pick this particular way of getting attention? And, and I don't have an answer to that question. What I do know about these offenders, and we've seen in, in, in some cases, is there's not a connection to the child like a normal mother would have, right? So you're not, you don't have the bond from mother to child. The offender views this child as a means to an end for herself. And a lot of times the lying in these cases can be, when you get to advanced offenders, you can have lying that is very, very extreme, even outside the healthcare of the child. So tell us how you got involved in this, Mike, about like your very first case. Oh, gosh. Uh, I came to a local DA's office in 2009. I had a first case come in. I did a terrible job on the case. It was uh, had jurisdictional issues. The police department really didn't want anything to do with it. So they assigned me to investigate it. Didn't know what I was doing. I, I relied on a, a few people. Mike Trent, a, a prosecutor from Houston, who prosecuted a couple of these cases. And Dr. Mark Feldman were great helps, as was Dr. Jamie Kaufman at Cook's Children's, and explained to me, this is abuse. Get your head around it. This is an intentional action. And so I was able to move forward in, in, on the investigation. I did the best I could, knowing what I could. And all the surgeries in that case happened in another state. So we transferred it to that state and nothing, I, I don't think anything was ever done. So back up just a minute and help me understand and maybe our listeners understand, like when you say, I got this case, what kind of case? I mean, you're an investigator. So what, you know, how does this come to your attention? What were the symptoms? What were they concerned about? Who reported it? Help us understand this. That particular case was reported by uh, Cook's Children's Hospital. It was reported because the child was brought in in a wheelchair, uh, was severely underweight, supposedly had uh, terrible feeding issues, had a feeding tube in place. And what they found is when they distracted the mom, got her away from the child, the child would get out of the wheelchair and run down the hall. He didn't need a wheelchair. And after removal, the child ate and gained weight and didn't have any of the ailments that mom had presented him with. Um, but the problem for us was jurisdictionally, all the surgeries, which in my state would be the injuries, how we would prosecute this, happened in another state. So we transferred that case out. Now, the interesting part about that is after that case, I went to my chief prosecutor at the time, Elena Minton, and told her, why don't you just give me any more of these that come in? Because they take a ton of work and a detective with a huge case, so it's not going to be able to, to do them justice. And I learned a little bit about it. And she said, well, Mike, that's fine. I've been here eight years. We've never had another one of these cases. And my response was, well, that's fine. They're a lot of work. <laughs> and uh, that was in, in January of 09 to the end of 2015. Uh, we had 16 cases reported. We prosecuted six with five uh, felony convictions for injury to a child. So I've read a bunch of different statistics on how common or how rare this is. As an investigator, what's your opinion about that? 
Well, there's no good statistical base on how common or how rare this is. I will tell you that the education level on this with police and CPS is extremely low. I do national trainings on how to investigate this abuse. I don't see anyone else doing trainings telling police and CPS how to do this. There's trainings on what it is, but not what do you do about it. The educational level throughout the criminal justice system is just as low. When you get to prosecutors, they're terrified of this because, number one, they're going to have to fit it into the laws available to them. There are no laws specific to this abuse in the United States. None exist. So how do you prosecute it? What do you put it under? Well, in my state, we prosecute it under 7.02 of the penal code, which is commonly referred to in Texas as the law of parties. And what 702 says basically in common language is if you trick a person into committing a crime and you have the culpable mental state for that crime, you basically trick someone into performing the act for you, you are just as culpable. So we're able to charge them in my state for surgeries committed that are not needed. We can actually use the scalpel as a deadly weapon. I was going to say, so it sounds like really the physicians are the kind of direct perpetrators unknowingly and that what you're doing is saying that the parent most often the mom is really the mastermind behind it correct the physicians are nothing more than the instrument of the mom and i will tell you that this is the easiest way in my state today to commit child abuse and get away with it now switching gears for a minute i know that there are a couple of techniques that have been used to try to validate that medical child abuse is going on. So, for example, the whole issue of having a camera in the hospital room. And I wonder how you feel about that. Is that something that you think is justified? And if it is, under what circumstances? I do think it's justified. And it it depends on, and I don't want to get too into the hospital aspect of it because they have to handle it legally the way that they see fit. As far as for criminal legality, though, it's legal as long as they have signed a consent uh, when they go into the hospital saying that they will be videotaped. And the children's hospitals that have these, have these cameras have that consent form. And it's also posted throughout the hallways that you can't be videotaped in, in the rooms. So it just depends hospital to hospital. Not all children's hospitals have them. And I can tell you, we have filed cases where we have video evidence and you cannot get past video evidence. This is really hard for normal, heck, it's hard for police officers to wrap their head around, much less normal members of society who, who, who don't have any experience with this. But when you have the video, it changes the game. It's like having an eyewitness. Correct. Right. And I know that looking at jury consulting, how powerful eyewitness testimony can be, even in cases where people can be wrong. Here you have a camera, and it's hard to argue that this camera is somehow you know, mistaken about what, what they're showing us. Correct. And one of the easiest ways to commit this abuse is is smother your child, right? You smother your child and then present your child as having apnea episodes. They just stop breathing. And these covert cameras are really good at catching that action specifically. But they also catch other actions. If a child, you know, they've caught people placing substances in a child's IV line or feeding tube. They can be really, really helpful. And, you know, the decision uh, is made by a treating physician if they have uh, suspicions of, of induction going on with the child. Mom is inducing the symptoms and they'll put them in the room. 
And what kind of support do physicians have from their hospitals if they suspect something like this? So it's going to depend on each individual hospital and how educated they are on this abuse and what systems they have in place for this abuse. I think where children's hospitals really need to be concerned is, I mean, this is a pretty established form of abuse now. Um, There's best practice guidelines that were released by the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children that detail how to handle one of these cases of abuse. And if you don't have policies in place, you open yourself up to liability, not only from the accused, but from the father of the child, say if they're divorced and, and, and the father has been saying this is happening and no one will believe it. So for children's hospitals, they really should have policies in place to address what to do during this abuse. That currently, it is extremely uneven. It's hospital to hospital depending on how well they understand this abuse. And most of them don't have a good grasp on this abuse. So give me an example of some of these kind of best practices for hospitals. What should they be doing? Um, I don't want to get too far into an area that is not my expertise, which is, uh, you know, hospital policy. But um, the most, what I tell physicians is if you suspect this abuse, you report this abuse. And if there's not a system in place at your hospital for reporting this abuse, you report this abuse to CPS. And I I recommend reporting to both CPS and police because there is still a huge misunderstanding on this abuse with both CPS and police. You report to both and hope one of them understand. You know, it's interesting because there's a lot of, I think, mixed feelings in the community towards CPS in general. I mean, you, you could read articles about, you know, CPS jumping the gun or overreacting or trying to take a child away. And then you also can read a lot of stories about CPS not going in, not protecting a child, returning, you know, return. I can imagine in this situation, this would be a particularly difficult case for CPS to kind of know what to do. Right. Well, and, and, you know, CPS catches a lot of grief for for things they're not necessarily responsible for. We need to remember that CPS doesn't decide if a child is in custody or out of custody. That decision is made by a judge based on the information provided by CPS. A lot of times CPS will provide information to try to keep the child out of the custody of the offender and the judge will give the child back, right? It's just not like they didn't try, but everyone then just says, well, you know, CPS gave the kid back. Well, no, CPS doesn't give kids back. The judge gives kids back. So there's that aspect to it. And and this can put CPS in a very hard place also. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I really would like to delve into some more of the cases that you've worked. I know you've worked some very interesting and actually some pretty high profile cases. This is Dr. Joni Johnston and Detective Mike Weber. And you are listening to A Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to A Thread of Evidence. My guest today is Detective Mike Weber, and we are talking about a really interesting, kind of hard to get your head around, but very real 
form of child abuse known as medical child abuse or Munchausen by proxy. And Mike, you were telling us about the very first case that you worked. And I know that you've been involved in some very high profile cases. I want to talk a little bit about the Hope Ibarra case. I've done quite a bit of research on this case. So take us through how this case came to your attention and through how the investigation proceeded. Sure. And interestingly enough, Hope Ibarra was the second case that I investigated and still made quite a few mistakes on, on, on this case. Some mistakes actually ended up benefiting the investigation, but put the child at risk. So Hope Ybarra had uh, presented her child as ill. Um, her child was uh, supposedly diagnosed with um, cystic fibrosis. Uh, Hope had recovered from cancer twice before and was afflicted with cancer again. She went on a local television uh, news uh, broadcast uh, soliciting donations because she's about to be kicked out of her house and that she had cancer, her daughter had terminal cystic fibrosis. After that newscast, money was donated. People started asking some questions. Her own mom started to poke around. Hope was in the, the hospital for her supposed cancer, trying to get uh, drugs, and the doctor was suspicious. Says, I can't find a diagnosis. Hope's mom went. The Hope's house went through her medical records, found lots of stuff in this case, didn't find any medical records for Hope's cancer. And they had had two parties for Hope to celebrate her recovery from cancer. She simply never had cancer. That's what started the investigation. You know, one, I want to jump in here for a minute just because I think that's such an important point because I know that at least between 30 and some studies show that up to 60 to 70 percent of the perpetrators of Munchausen by proxy has also faked their own medical illnesses. Correct. And of the six I mentioned that we prosecuted earlier, three of those offenders had faked cancer themselves. Okay. So Hope starts out, it sounds like, with her own faked illnesses. She says she has cancer. She kind of convinces a community. Now, you mentioned a fundraiser. I know that this kind of Medical child abuse can also have other motives in addition to attention. There's just something called malingering by proxy, which is when you're kind of faking an illness to get monetary gain. Is this part of the thing with hope? And I think what we need to realize is that with fundraisers comes attention, right? Mm. So you're not only getting money, you're also getting an attention fix for being a good mom, for this mom or this poor child or this, this poor mom who has cancer. You're still getting an attention fix from the fundraising. And with hope, it was the people around her doing the fundraising. And in that case specifically, my personal belief is I think she got a little mental jolt out of fooling those people into doing that. And I think she got a mental jolt out of fooling people she perceived as smarter than herself. So there, there are a lot of possible motives here. So she's somebody who has faked having cancer. Her mom becomes suspicious, it sounds like, because why? Because the doctor is contacting her? Yeah, the doctor could find no record of Hope's uh, cancer, so the doctor contacts her. Mom had some medical training, was, was familiar with a Munchausen by proxy, Hope's mom was. She went back to the house, searched medical records, and found them. She then became suspicious of the victim's illnesses. Hope had three children, an older boy by everyone's account, who was perfectly healthy, a middle child who had uh, cerebral palsy earlier in life before magically being cured around the time of the victim's birth, and then the victim, who was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, who had a feeding tube, a central line, a fundoplication surgery, which is tying of the stomach around the, the esophagus so you can't regurgitate or reflux, and many, many other procedures done. 
And it was the youngest child that we focused our investigation on. And so how did this kind of translate into moving from Hope over to her younger child? Well, the mother, Hope's mother became concerned about the younger child, and she contacted the child's pulmonologist at Cook's Children's Hospital, who called the father and asked the father to bring the children back in for another sweat test. And the way a presumptive test is done for cystic fibrosis, I'm not a doctor, this is a very layman's explanation. You put a cotton patch on a child's arm and you send the child off to run around and play with mom for 30 minutes. That cotton absorbs the child's sweat. Child comes back, you analyze the salt content in that sweat. If it's above a certain level, then it's positive for cystic fibrosis. And she had had four of these sweat tests done previously at Dallas, at Children's Medical Center in Dallas, and uh, had gotten a positive preliminary diagnosis there. So dad refused to bring the child in. There were two reports made to CPS, and the uh, CPS ordered the child to be told, called dad, said, you have to bring the child in. You, you or Hope have to bring the child in. Hope brought the child in. The interesting thing is, Hope was not supposed to be in the room with the child during the sweat test. During the first test, she wasn't. That test came back negative. But because medical tests are never 100%, they did a second test. During the second test, Hope conned her way back into that room. These offenders are very manipulative and are very good at getting people to do what they want them to do. While she was in the room, a child life specialist and a nurse observed her to start to tamper with the patch on the victim's arm. They immediately stopped her, separated her from the victim. Hope became very upset and asked to take the victim to the bathroom. She was told no. She said, I just need to take her to the bathroom so I, referring to herself, can have a breakdown. She knew she was caught, right? Consciousness of guilt. She's not mentally insane. She doesn't meet the legal definition of insanity. She knows what she's done. She knows the jig is up. And sure enough, the second test came back negative. At that point, I became involved in the investigation and it really took off from there. And I know that she was sentenced to what, 10 years or she did a plea deal for 10 years in prison. She did. And kind of where it went from there, what we charged her with was bleeding her daughter to induce anemia. And I'll explain how we got there. First, you know, Hope had presented herself. We talked about fantastic lying and other aspects of their lives. Hope had presented herself as a PhD. She didn't have a PhD. I was able to confirm that. I I called her work to try to confirm that. And I spoke with the HR director who, when she found out it was about Hope, asked me if she could have the president of the company call me right back, which is a clue in my business. The president called me back and he explained to me how they suspected Hope of poisoning the HR director's water bottle, but had never reported it because they couldn't prove it. Well, that's kind of our job is to prove that. But he also told me Hope had access to nine different pathogens. Four of those pathogens that ended up in her daughter. She later confessed to me to putting uh, Pseudomonas arginosa and Staph aureus into her daughter's sputum sample, which I do not believe is true. I believe she induced her daughter with these pathogens through the daughter's nebulizer treatments that she had to take for her asthma. What we initially, what we ended up charging her for, there was an event at Cook's Children's. The interesting thing about this is this child got a pick line, which is a central line, so access to the blood from the outside for mom, right? 
and that those are put in and so medication so you don't have to stick the child so much with the needle. She had presented the victim as anemic before the victim ever had a pick line. There was no medical record of the victim ever being anemic when she presented the victim as anemic. So Mike, let me jump in here for a second because sure. one of the things I keep thinking as we go through some of these cases is where are the dads when these things are going on? As you can imagine, a dad initially is going to trust his wife with his children. He's not going to believe that his wife is doing this, correct? Because it's his wife. Why wouldn't he trust her with her own children? But a lot of the times these dads are extremely passive. I don't know if the offenders pick them that way or if they make them that way. If they've just been beaten down so much. A lot of these offenders have very powerful personalities. And when you talk to people outside the relationship who are close to the husband and and the offender, what you find is they will tell you that the wife absolutely wears the pants in the family and makes the decisions. And the husband goes along. And, you know, Mike, I'm certainly not implying that because somebody was unaware or was busy at work that they're somehow collaborating in this. I think, I do think though sometimes that, you know, I would think as a lot of parents are very involved, moms and dads these days, And I would think if a child was as seriously ill as this child is being presented as, that the dad might notice some, I guess, discrepancies or at least want to talk to the doctor himself at some point. Right. And and again, it goes to the personality of these dads. I can tell you that in the Yamara case, the doctors rarely saw the father. I personally asked him, were you present for any of the child's medical stuff. Or, yeah, I was there when the feeding cube was placed. Where was the place? Where was the place to cook children? That was placed in Dallas. So he didn't even know the hospital where the feeding So a lot of times the offenders isolate the dad away. They will tell them, no, I don't want you to go. No, I'll handle it on my own. No, I need you to do this. No, I need you to do that. And I'm not giving the fathers an excuse. But when I investigate one of these cases, I have to focus on who provided the false medical history to the doctor. If it's a fabrication case, because that is going to be my suspect who is providing the false medical history and who is the main caregiver medically for this child. Right. And in these cases, it is the mother. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what I'm wondering is, who is the one you mentioned earlier in our talk that the reporter initially could be anybody. It could be a neighbor. It could be a friend. It could be the medical professionals or whatever. So let's say I'm a neighbor, like the very beginning of our show, the introduction. What would I maybe notice? Oh, gosh. It's really, really hard to give a ton of red flags for this. What I tell medical professionals, and I'm not a doctor, but what I tell CPS and police and medical professionals is you look for multiple medical symptoms over numerous body systems that do not make medical sense. So you'll have gastric symptoms and neurological symptoms that don't make medical sense. So you'll have gastric symptoms and pulmonary symptoms that don't make uh, medical sense. And you'll have a puzzle to a doctor that is very, very, very awkward and things that they really have not encountered before. Now, that brings up a very interesting point because I know that you're probably familiar with Dr. Meadows, who was the person to coin the initial term for this, Munchausen by proxy. And he ended up getting into some trouble later in his career. And I've heard several people talk about that, the kind of the whole issue of rare diseases in children and the possibility of there being false accusations against parents who are really concerned and very involved in their child's care, understandably. So how do you sort through that? The importance of an effective police and CPS investigation 
cannot be understated. Police especially can provide so much additional evidence. If the investigation is done properly, we're going to have the suspect's own written words on social media posts, through their own text messages, through their own emails. We're going to be able to trace back and what we will see on these, like in another case I had, we had mom posting on Facebook, oh, it's, you know, she's got this, she's anemic again, we're at the hospital, what hospital are you at, Cook's Children's, well, all that information is data. And then you go back and you look at Cook's Children's records, and they weren't at any Cook's Children's within a week of that post by mom with an anemia issue in any facility at Cook's Children's. She simply made it up to put it on Facebook for attention. Again, so you're proving motive that way. What you also see is you'll have a medical test where it's negative and they'll be on Facebook posting it's positive. That is intentional, right? So you have a ton of ways to gather evidence as, as police. In the Brittany Phillips case, we actually did a search warrant and obtained her laptop computer, which she was using at the hospital. And Brittany Phillips Googled an article about a lady in Austin, Texas, who had poisoned her child's IV line with feces feeding tube or IV line with feces. So Mike, back up for a second. Tell us, kind of refresh us about the Brittany Phillips case, because I'm sure some people aren't familiar with it. Right. Brittany Phillips um, had a three-year-old daughter who she had presented as having feeding issues that got the feeding tube placed. She got discovered when she came to Cook's Children's, presented the child as being dehydrated, and and the child started having polymicrobial blood infections, more than one organism in the blood which is kind of a hallmark sign of abuse if there's no cause for it. They did a full body scan. She wasn't leaking anywhere that would cause this infection. And she had multiple of them. They clear one up, then another one would happen. Brittany had her computer in the hospital at the time. And during that stage, uh, she went on her computer. We later got the computer and analyzed it. And in her internet search history, she went and Googled an article about a lady in Austin, Texas, who had poisoned her child by putting feces in the child's IV line or feeding tube. 36 hours after that, her child was had a fever of 100. Brittany was yelling and screaming for medical personnel, demanding they have lab come down and take her blood and do a culture. And as soon as the lab people showed up, she emotionally was fine. She was relaxed. She was fine once they were taking her blood. When they came back two hours later to tell her her child had a terrible blood infection, low white blood cell count, she was laying in bed on the phone, looked up and said, what are the numbers? They told her, she said, you can leave. No emotion in her voice. They then put her in a a covert video surveillance room that they have at the hospital for these cases. She walked into the room. She looked into the vent, said, that's a camera. Looked at the nurse and said, I would never hurt my child. No one had made an accusation. They just told her they were moving rooms because they needed the room for another patient. And uh, when we analyzed her computer, what we found is 36 hours before her child was discovered to to have a low white blood cell count, sort of a terrible infection. She was Googling poop and feeding tube, pee and veins, pee and blood, right after she viewed that article about that lady in Austin. Mike, I want to talk just for a minute about the Shauna D. Taylor case. For those of you not familiar with this case, she was convicted in the fall of 2018 of aggravated child abuse and child neglect. And this was stemming from the 2013 poisoning of her baby with iron supplements. And there are a couple of things that really stand out to me about this case. One is that she had a history of medical child abuse against 
nine other children. All of them, of course, were hers. And second of all, one of her children actually testified in this case against her. And I'm wondering if this is a common thing that you see, Mike, the kids, are kids actually called to the stand and what's the, what is that like for them? It is really case dependent, right? Uh, we've tried two cases here in Tarrant County. One case, the victim did not testify. The other case, the victim did testify. It, it, it all is going to depend on the specific facts in that case and what your victim actually has to say uh, about the abuse. Uh, you know, there are cases, um, the Susan Smith case, um, uh, that child also testified against her mom, but came back later in life, now has said that the abuse never happened because she's got immense pressure from family. So it just depends on where your victim is at uh, in the case and what, and what information they have to give uh, to the jury. And I guess one thing that surprised me is that I would I imagine a lot of these cases happen to children who are, you know, babies or small children. So how common is it to have a victim who's actually old enough to testify? Fairly common. You, they do happen to the babies, but the problem with this abuse is it can go on for years because we're just not really good at catching it. So the child can be, uh, I've had victims from ranging from anywhere to two years old to 14 years old. So it just depends on where your child is uh, at the time. We had one victim who was three and she did testify when she was five. And she was a, she's an extremely verbal three-year-old. That's, that's amazing. I wonder, have you had any contact with some of these children, you know, years down the road? To, I mean, how do, they, how do they do? I do keep in contact with several of, uh, of my victims' families. They are, you know, the physical scars, uh, if, if they've had surgeries like feeding tube, that's going to leave a scar. They're always going to have that scar with them. But it's more the emotional baggage that's left from the abuse. Um, and if they're young enough to where they don't recall the abuse, well, that is unfortunately a best case scenario, right? So they don't have the emotional baggage. They just have to deal with the physical scars. And the emotional baggage, I think, is, is the toughest thing for these, for these victims. And again, there's zero resources for them. There's nothing out there to help victims of this abuse long term. I can definitely see that because, you know, having been a practicing psychologist for many, many years and having worked a lot with children who had been victims of physical and sexual abuse, I can tell you that I've never heard of resources for this type of abuse. They don't exist. They really don't. There's, a, you know, there's a couple of online groups, but that's, that's, that's the extent of resources for these people. So we're going to stop for a minute and take a quick break. When we come back, I want to move into the investigation and kind of what you do, I guess, from start to finish. We've kind of touched on that, but I really want to talk about kind of when you do your training with law enforcement or CPS, kind of help me understand kind of the things that you walk through. You are listening to A Threat of Evidence with Dr. Joni Johnston and Detective Mike Weber on America Out Loud. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. 
Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to A Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston and my guest today is Detective Mike Weber, who is an expert in medical child abuse, which is also known as Munchausen by proxy. So Mike, is this a mental illness that we're talking about? I think the DSM-5 says it best. Uh, Mental illness and criminal activity are not mutually exclusive. This is defined in the DSM-5 as factitious disorder imposed on another. But when these are offenders are tested by people qualified to do the testing, the most they find in these offenders usually are personality disorder. The most common are narcissistic and borderline personality disorder. And Yet not everyone who has those disorders commits this abuse. And not everyone who commits this abuse will test for having a mental disorder. That's a very, very important point. So it sounds like and we all know this because there are a lot of other disorders that can lead to criminal activity. And just because you may have a mental disorder does not mean you're not culpable for what you've done. Most certainly. I mean, factitious disorder imposed on another has been in the DSM only since 2013. It was listed as factitious um, disorder by proxy in the DSM-4, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of uh, Mental Illness, in the appendix for consideration. But it's only been in the DSM since 2013. Pedophilia has been in the DSM since 1952 as a diagnosed psychological condition. But yet we hold those offenders accountable every single day because they know what they're doing, when they're doing it, and they know it's wrong. And that's exactly the same as these offenders. And there's a lot of commonalities between this crime and pedophilia. That's really important because I, I think there's a lot of confusion out there about mental illness and insanity. You and I both know, I do a lot of evaluations of criminal defendants who are considering pleading in GI. And one of the things that you know, is very clear is the standard for legal insanity is much, 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 much higher than what might be considered a mental illness. So unless a person really does not have an appreciation of what they're doing and the wrongfulness of that, then they are responsible for what they've done. And it sounds, you know, certainly in these cases, the fact that there is so much deception and planning and research that goes on argues clearly that this is not somebody who did not understand that this is wrong and that if they're discovered, they're going to get in trouble for it. Correct. And when I've interviewed these offenders, I mean, they present no differently in an interview setting than any other child abuse offender. They will first lie. And then when you confront them with some alternative information, they'll change their story to try to fit that information. They may eventually give you admissions 
but you rarely get a complete and full confession. And that is every abusive head trauma interview I've ever done, every child sexual assault interview I've ever done. You know, I write a couple of blogs and I've gotten contacted a few times over the past few years from individuals who basically have said, I think that my sister or my mom or somebody else has Munchausen by proxy. What do I do? And I've certainly encouraged them. I've always offered to have a conversation with that person. I've always encouraged them to contact a child abuse hotline or contact CPS. What would your advice be? My advice is, it's abuse. If you suspect, you report. And this particular abuse, I suggest reporting to both police and CPS because it is so misunderstood among both those organizations. You report to both and hope that one of them gets it. The APSAC best practice guidelines uh, that were published in the March uh, 2018 issue of the APSAC advisor, they're a great guide for court systems. Um, they're free to the public and uh, they touch just about every discipline that handles this abuse. Take those with you when you go to report. Fax those or email them to CPS. Uh, I did an article for the FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin. When you go to the police, give them that article so they'll know this is what I'm reporting. I'm reporting abuse. Make very clear what you're reporting because they don't have an understanding of it. In your investigation, how do you tell the difference between a parent, a mom, for example, who is just struggling, is overly invested maybe in her child, overly concerned, wants to have a second opinion, a third opinion for everything, and, you know, has the right to do so. And then somebody who is really deliberately inducing illness or lying about illness to get attention. Well, you have to look at the full picture. And to do that, you have to have everyone's involvement. By that, you really need to work this from a multidisciplinary team aspect, right? You need a full medical record review from the birth of the child forward. And that needs to be done by a, a child abuse pediatrician or other qualified medical personnel. And then you need to have police who are gathering personal writings by the offender, suspected offender. So that being Facebook posts, that being text messages, that being emails, that being uh, computers, whatever probable cause can be developed for, uh, you need to get those writings and see what matches up and what is going on. The difference between someone who just is overly concerned for their kid is they're not lying. They're just overly concerned, right? So they're not going to change facts when you present them with other evidence. They're not going to change their story, basically, uh, which is what we see these offenders do consistently when presented with evidence of deception. And it's a pattern of deception that you see for years in these cases. These cases are very, very, going for a very long time before they are discovered in many cases. You know, one of these that concerns me is I know that a lot of these cases are really handled through family court. And so you may have a situation even resolved with one child, but I know that sometimes a perpetrator will move from one child to another child. Right. And again, I go back to the, the APSAC best practice guidelines. If you can get that paper before a judge, I teach the CPS workers, if it's allowed in your state, which it is in Texas, when you file your initial affidavit, you attach the guidelines to your initial affidavit as a supporting document. So at least the judge has it to read, whether he chooses to or not. Right. So you have done the best that you can. And I encourage CPS attorneys to get that document in front of the judges. Family court is also extremely undereducated on, on this subject. And I've seen terrible family court decisions. 
I mean, do you see situations where you really believe this is happening and the child is returned? Sure. Yes. That must be really distressing to you. I mean, how do you handle that just from a personal standpoint? It can be grating, but I try to focus on the other cases that we have success in. I was thinking about that because this is such a, you know, there's so many fundamental kind of values that so many of us have. For example, it's just kind of the sanctity of motherhood to just wrap our heads around the fact that a parent could be deliberately harming a child for her own, you know, means. I just think that's got to take a toll on anybody who's involved in these cases. Well, I mean, I, I think I personally focus on the children who have come out of that abuse. Um, I see some victims still today who are normal, healthy children because we did the right thing in those cases. And I tend to focus more on that than the other. Understandably so. Now, you know, that's a good point because I'm sure it depends on the age of the child, but do some of the children believe they're actually ill? Oh, oh, I mean, you believe what your parent tells you, right? So, I mean, uh, Gypsy Blanchard is a perfect example. She was 23 years old and still believed what her mother was telling her because she'd been told that her whole life. You'll see a lot of these these offenders are really system users, right? So they'll use homeschooling to isolate the child. Um, they'll use the medical system to get the abuse they, they want for the child. And then when it does the family court, they'll use the legal system for protection. They'll use the church system for support. So these are sophisticated individuals for the most part, it sounds like. Some have been very sophisticated, some have not. All of them have been extremely manipulative. So in terms of your training, what do you think are the most important points that you make with law enforcement and CPS that are the most difficult for them to kind of wrap their arms around? The biggest thing is changing law enforcement and CPS perception of what this is, to get them to view it as abuse. That's how come the, the comparison to pedophilia is, is so spot on. The treatment for offenders in both pedophilia and this abuse requires that they be completely truthful or it's not successful, right? These offenders and pedophiles groom their victims. Their victims love the offenders in both of these cases, right? And want to be with the offender in in, in both of these cases. There's just numerous uh, commonalities between pedophilia and this abuse. And that's what I try to focus on, especially with police, to change perceptions of what this is. Instead of them saying, well, the doctors did the surgery, it's their fault. You have to look deeper. Now, are there any cases where, and I'm not aware of any, you may be, where someone has kind of confessed to this and gotten treatment and kind of moved forward? There is. It hasn't been any of of my cases. I hope you bar I did make she made some admissions to me uh, in my interview with her. Then later, interestingly enough, when she was incarcerated and there were no further consequences, she then made later admissions to uh, several different reporters without ever really giving the whole truth, right? But I am aware that um, some of the experts have had successful treatment, but the only success in treatment that has ever been documented is if the offender has been completely honest about their behavior. And that's a pretty tall barrier, I would imagine. With these offenders, extremely tall. Yeah. Just because I think, like you said, I think not only do we as a society view these things as so horrendous and so horrible, I would imagine it'd be pretty difficult to look somebody in the face and say, yeah, I did these things. 
yeah, I intentionally put my child's life in danger for my own selfishness or my own needs or whatever, need for attention. Correct. And when you get to some of the more advanced offenders, they are so used to lying. It is second nature to them. And they just can't get away from that. What percentage of the cases that you've worked, Mike, end up in prosecution? I've investigated 22. We prosecuted six of those. We have two and then two more pending prosecutions. So eight out of 22. Now, I think it's very important to make the point that police investigations not only lead to arrests and convictions, they also lead to people being cleared. I've also cleared people under suspicion for this abuse. That is such, I want to hear about that because as we, we were talking during the break a little bit and, you know, there have been incidences of false accusations, not intentionally false per se, but just people who really were put under suspicion who were innocent. And I think it's important for you to speak to that and tell me about a case, for example, where a person was accused or suspected and was cleared. Well, we had a recent case that I I can't really talk about because it's still open, but I, I will tell you that that person could have been under suspicion for a very long time, but because directly because of police involvement, they're not under suspicion anymore. And the prognosis for that particular child is very good. And I certainly don't want to in any way put you in an awkward position. Can you maybe in more general terms Give us a, an example of it. what sure. might make somebody come under suspicion. Is it some kind of malicious wanting to get the person in trouble? Is it a misunderstanding? What would be an example of that? Well, let's use this as an example of, let's say you have a 14 or 15-year-old. That 14 or 15-year-old is presenting with illnesses, right? And you suspect that the mother has been doing this. And there is a history of illness in the child. What a law enforcement investigation can do, if we can get the communication, because a 14 or 15-year-olds are going to have a cell phone, right? If we can get those communications without them suspecting us coming, and we can look at those communications. The communications aren't the only thing that clear, but you can have certain specific types of communications where the mother is being very forthcoming and telling the daughter, certain things that she needs to comply with doctors. She needs to stay there. She needs to keep doing the treatments, things of that nature, where the daughter is wanting to leave. The only time they want to leave medical care is when they're not getting what they want, right? There's just a number of ways that police can clear people by looking at other aspects outside of the medical records that can also lead to providing really good evidence that they're guilty. So it's good to know that, that, you know, it sounds like in your training that you really focus on a very systematic and structured way of investigating that really leads to, could lead to multiple paths. It can lead to somebody being indicted or arrested or whatever, but it can also lead to somebody being cleared. And the importance of looking at each case individually and the evidence in that particular case. Correct. And if you're an investigator who can't get away from a case theory, you don't need to be an investigator. <laughs> you, it's fine to have a theory on, on, on what a case is, but when evidence comes up that disproves that theory, you need to say, okay, that's wrong, let's move on. And that's what you need to do in these cases. 
So I want to talk just for a minute. I know that you have a website, which I'd love for you to mention to us and talk just very briefly. We're almost out of time, unfortunately, about the kind of training that you do on medical child abuse, who you do it for, and the best way to contact you. Sure. My, my website is MikeWeberConsulting.com. I provide training services for CPS, law enforcement, medical personnel, uh, hospitals, legal nurses, uh, pretty much any discipline that will touch this abuse family court judges, uh, criminal court judges, and the training basically is how to investigate this abuse. And we use case examples, the good and the bad, the good examples of what I did correctly and the bad examples of what I did wrong, especially in the earlier cases, and use those to train people and try to change the perception of this. You have to understand these investigations are extremely complicated to do right, and they take time. And what police officers, CPS, don't have these days is time. And it just comes to a point where you have to make a decision, are we going to do this? And if you don't, there's every chance that the child's going to suffer further abuse. Well, I would certainly encourage anybody listening who is involved in any of these areas and would like more information about this really important topic to call you, Mike. And I also wanted to thank you again so much for all of your insight and experience and education in this topic. It's kind of a grim topic, but it's certainly a really, really important one. So thank you so much again for being here. This is Dr. Joni Johnson. My guest today was Detective Mike Weber. And I will see you next time on the Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. 